Hi, welcome to the History of Korea. I'm Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the military dictator Choi Chung-hun, whose family would control the kingdom for 60 years. We also touch briefly upon the Goryeo military and Buddhism in Goryeo. Choi Chung-hun was kind of like the Cromwell of English history and kind of like the shoguns of Kamakura, Japan. And I have to say it's hard not to think of the current rulers of North Korea when you read about him. You'll have to be the judge of how applicable those comparisons are after listening to this episode. The year is 1196. Yi Eui-min, the son of slaves who seized control of Goryeo, is plundering the country along with his two sons. According to accounts, they have completely taken a unilateral control of the country, even relegating the Council of Generals to a kind of advisory role. Another opportunist general, by the name of Che Chung-hun, senses his opportunity and makes his move. He assassinates Yi Eui-min and himself takes power of the country. Che, his sons, and his grandsons would control the country for the next 60 years. As in the last episode, I'll be relying a lot on Edward Schultz's excellent book, Generals and Scholars, Military Rule in Medieval Korea, published in January 2000 by the University of Hawaii Press, one of my favorite book publishers. So let's talk a bit about Choi the man. First of all, the name. His last name is pronounced Choi. It's actually the two sounds Cho and E, but when you contract them really quickly, it becomes Choi. As in cho, so if you say cho and e very quickly, it kind of becomes chue. In English, you'll see it romanized as c-h-o-e most of the time. And so many people will actually call him cho. But the, but the, but the correct pronunciation is chue. Sidebar, if you ever see the Korean name c-h-o-i or choi, it's actually the same name pronounced chue. I'll use a correct pronunciation. Choi was born in 1149 in either Gyeongju or Gaesong, which, by the way, these two places are very far apart from each other, but apparently the records are not very good. He was a son of Grand General Choi Won-ho. He was also the descendant of the famous Confucian scholar Choi Chi-won, who lived in the 10th century. Like most of the military officers of the time, Choi was from a long line of aristocratic military officers. His military career started promisingly enough. At the start of King, King Myeongjong's reign in 1170, he was only 21 years old. He achieved recognition for bravery in quelling anti-military rebellions and advanced to be a leader of the Toryang, or Special Patrol Troops. He also was promoted to commander in the Capital Guards. During this time, having come from an elite military family, he must have had a very close view of all the events that unfolded. He must have been aware of not only the place of the military, but how all the other generals were vying for power. But after a fast start in the military, we don't know what happened in the middle of his career. It is notable, however, that he had a short stint as a civil bureaucrat himself. He was appointed as a royal inspector in the Gyeongsang province, which is in the south uh, east, but apparently returned to the capital in frustration after having witnessed so much abuse of power by corrupt officials. This is notable because I don't think any of the other military rulers, and certainly not Yi Min, had any experience or 
prolonged experience in the civil service. We don't know about the middle of his career, but we certainly know about what happens next. At age 35, he rises to general. At age 40, in 1189, he joins the war council under Yi Eumin. For the next seven years, he must have been biding his time because it's in 1196 that he finally decides to usurp Yi Eumin. Along with his general brother, Choe Chung-su, and their private armies, they attack and depose the war council and Yi Eumin. Incredibly, the dynastic records report that it was a dispute over chickens that first incited Choe to rise against Yi. Choe's younger brother complained that Yi Eumin's corrupt cronies had stolen chickens from him and when he went to complain, he was tied up by them. Apparently, it was his younger brother's willingness to fight that finally convinced Chue to do the same. So, when Yi Eumin visited a mountain retreat, the two brothers and their kin attacked. Chung Su tried to stab Yi, and when he failed, Chue stepped in and beheaded the dictator. The victorious Chue's then had to race back to the capital to make sure there weren't any repri- reprisals. Unlike Yi Eumin, who by most accounts was an autocratic unilateral despot, Chue builds a coalition of military officers and civilians around the power of the monarchy. Chue had most likely already lined up the support of General Baek Jun-yu, who then enlisted the capital guards to side with him. The next step was to go to the king, or should we say the puppet king, Myeongjong, to get a royal sanction, which he got. After all, any alternative was better than the son of a former slave. And let's face it, Chue had a better background to lead. As a former son of slaves, Yi Eumin may have not had as much experience um, hanging out with some of the educated elites. Although, to be fair, Yi Eumin actually did graduate from the military academy of the day. So I'm sure he, you know, he very quickly learned how to um, hang out with those in power. However, Chue, on the other hand, came from a long line of aristocrats, and his stint in the civil service as a royal inspector, however short, must have been very helpful to him as he formed alliances with the civil bureaucrats around him. Chue did his best in emphasizing the differences with his predecessor. By painting Yi Eumin as a dangerous, uneducated, lowborn thug, which, of course, was unfair, um, nevertheless, Che was able to pitch himself as the noble-born solution. Never mind that he was just another usurper, just like uh, Yi. Once he was in charge, the purge was quick and systematic. As Edward Schultz writes, quote, Within the first 18 months of Che rule, Chung Hun purged at least 10 generals, six grand generals, and six supreme generals, more than half the leadership of the nearly moribund Council of Generals. Unquote. In true reformer fashion, like Martin Luther's 95 Theses, Chue draws up a list of 10 proposals, which he then presents once he's, once he's in power. They were, in fact, more like grievances that he must have been carrying with him for a very long time. Edward Schultz writes again, quote, he attacked the bureaucracy, the powerful families, the Buddhist hierarchy, and the monarch himself for ineffective policies that had pushed the kingdom close to total collapse. Through these proposals, he touched on the chaos engendered by peasant revolts, the disturbances caused by monks, and the perfidy of slaves. Unquote. 
Buddhism in Gorya actually plays a pretty central role in this unfolding drama, so before we continue, let's take a minute to talk about it. Remco Breuker, a professor of Korean studies and expert on the Gorya period at Leiden University in Amsterdam, wrote his thesis paper on Gorya entitled, quote, When Truth is Everywhere, The Formation of Plural Identities in Medieval Korea, unquote. And among many things, Breuker talks about how Goryeo society in relation to religion and spirituality was pluralist. There wasn't one philosophy or school of religion that dominated. Instead, it was a dynamic mix of influences, as would be expected from a country that was at the crossroads of a a few but very powerful outside forces, namely southern China, northern China, and the tribal nations to the north. Thus, Buddhism was just one influence among several. Geomancy, or the divination of natural elements, was considered the official native belief at the time. But Buddhism, which had first entered Korea from the Qin dynasty in 392, had become just as influential at many levels of society, including at court and within the military. Now, the topic of Buddhism in Korea is an extremely rich one, and more importantly, it is very well documented. But I admit I have not studied much of it yet. So I'll just touch upon some of the larger themes and more relevant themes here. By Chue's rule in 1196, Buddhism has become so ingrained among the cultured elites in Gorya that even princes in the royal family, some of them had become monks. Certain temples, especially within the capital, had gained intimate access to the royal family through the guise of spirituality and had gained a lot of power that way. Just like in modern times, Religious organizations were always specially treated by governments, especially in terms of taxes. So many Buddhist temples had amassed significant treasuries out of the reach of the government, which they then used to influence the court and the government. It got to a point where many kings and aristocrats were building their own private temples in far-flung locations and choosing to live in them instead of the capital. Kind of reminds me, kind of reminds you of some of our religious leaders in in the United States that take the tithes from their followers and build like these enormous houses, and in some cases they're actually tax exempt. So Trev felt that this practice was harming the country because it was distracting the rulers of the country of the kingdom away from important state matters. Trev addresses this in his ninth pr- proposal, writing, "In Tejo's day." Temples were constructed taking into account favorable and unfavorable topographic features. This, accordingly, made the country peaceful. In later ages, ministers, generals, ranking officials, and unreliable monks, without examining the topographical conditions, built Buddhist buildings and named them their prayer halls. Injuring the earth's vital system, they often produced calamity. Please, only your majesty can make the geomancy officials investigate and remove any structures not built by the dynasty. Do not let yourself become an example of ridicule for later generations. Unquote. Of course, Tsui is explicitly sta- saying that Buddhist buildings are wrong because they were not built according to geomancy. But what he's really saying is that the practice of the elites building their own Buddhist temples at the expense of good governance needs to stop. Before Buddhism... Koreans built, believed so strongly in geomancy that it even guided the way they built forts. Koreans at the time considered natural elements, such as borders and trees, as divine. In the 12th century, Shu Jing, a visitor from the Song dynasty, would remark on how the Koreans would build the walls of the capital around large trees and boulders, 
rather than removing these natural elements. Funnily enough, Cho's first proposal is a criticism of the king, and in it he references geomancy. Quote, Tejo built a palace, a great palace, so his descendants as rulers would live there for myriad generations. A while ago, the palace was burnt and then rebuilt in a grand style. But because of beliefs in the theory of divination, for a long time it was not occupied. How can one just rely on yin and yang? Only your majesty on a proper day can enter to occupy it and follow the eternal heavenly commands. This specific criticism was in reference to Myungjong's habit of leaving the royal palace and thereby shirking his duties. Che's second proposal criticizes two civil bureaus, the Munhwabu, or the Ministry of Culture, and Chumidwan, the Security Council. Quote, Lately, there has been an excess of people in the two departments and various ranks. The salaries are insufficient and evils have spread. Unquote. Tre built a dual system that relied on the existing dynastic system in concert with his own private system of government. Here are some of the steps he took once he was in control. Number one, he emphasized the civil exam more than any other ruler. Three months after taking power, Chue held a formal exam in which 33 servants passed. This is the biggest class to ever graduate in all of Goryeo's history. And no question he did this in order to fill the civil bureaucracy ranks with people that he trusted. Number two, he refused the highest civil positions, instead choosing, le choosing lesser roles in offices like the censorate. He didn't want to attract too much attention too soon. Number three, he did, he did accept the military role as supreme commander, which is not surprising. For all his posturing about taking a lesser role in government, he must have known that his authority relied ultimately on the military. Number four, a year after his rise to power, he forced Myungjong to abdicate the throne to his younger brother, 15-years-old Xinjong. He did this by compelling Myungjong to feign an illness. Because remember, Korea was still technically a tribute or a tributary to the Jin Empire at this point. We'll cover this special relationship in another episode, but one of the conditions of the status was that every royal succession had to be submitted to and then approved by the Jin. So even though Myungjong was the perfect puppet, this must have been symbolically necessary given Che's 10 proposals criticizing the monarchy. Aside from the initial purges, Chue was deliberate and measured in the way he slowly took control of the country. He didn't make any brash moves that would incur undue attention. Chue's personal marriage policy was similar. As many rulers of old, kings, kings and nobles in Goryeo took multiple wives as both political and economic strategy. Wang Gun, the founder of Goryeo, for example, had 29 wives, each representing a different province of Korea. Chue already had a wife from the prominent military family of Song. After taking power, his next two wives were from the old aristocratic families of the, the Chang'an Im and the Wang. Chue seemed to be following a textbook Machiavellian process of consolidating control based on a carefully designed plan followed with scrupulous discipline. It all seemed perfect, maybe too perfect. Because while Chue himself had the discipline, his younger brother apparently did not. Chue Chungsu, 
the younger brother who first stirred up a fight over chickens, decides to marry his own daughter to the crown prince in 1197. He plans to do this over the strenuous objections of Chue. Here's what Chue said to his brother, quote, Although our power extends throughout the country, our lineage was originally poor and without influence. If your daughter married the crown prince, would we not be criticized? As an ancient once said, if the front carriage falls, the rear carriage should be careful. Earlier, Yi Weibang married his daughter to the crown prince, and then Yi was killed. Do you want to follow this precedent? Unquote. Now, maybe Che was jealous that his younger brother was now trying to be more closely aligned with the crown. But judging from all of Che's actions up until that point, I'm going to guess that Che was probably just angry that his brother would make such a controversial, brash move. I'm guessing that Che's strategy was to gradually work his way towards an inner marriage with the royal family. Also, Che must have known that it was very bad timing. Just a year after he had forced Myeongjong to abdicate, his family was trying to marry into the royal family. Most importantly, Yi Min had pushed his daughter onto the crown prince as a wife, which had enraged pretty much everyone. So when Chung Su continued to disregard his brother's objections, Chue met him on the street and killed him. Now, let's talk about what Chue did with the military. First, a brief summary of the Goryeo military forces. Before the military coup, the total standing army in peacetime for Goryeo was around 43,000 men, or roughly 2% of the population, assuming that the population of Goryeo at the time was around 2 million, um, which, by the way, is roughly equal to England and Wales at the time. But this was just the royal army, so um, we, ha we haven't quite added the provincial armies to that total. Gordia's armed forces were divided into two armies and six guards. The two armies of around 3,000 men total were the elite soldiers and their loyalty was to the king. Next were the three standing guard units of around 33,000 whose sole purpose was to guard the capital area. The remaining three were auxiliary units that acted as police or as ceremonial guards. These royal units ultimately reported to the Council of Generals itself, and most of the royal units were manned by professional soldiers, many of whom came from elite families that had been supplying officers and soldiers for a very long time. In addition to the standing royal army, there were five emergency units that mobilized in, terms of, in times of war. These men were recruited from both common and aristocratic backgrounds, but once peace was reached, the provinces were then responsible for their own defense. For example, the two northern frontier districts were able to keep their taxes in order to fund their own militaries. Likewise, in the south, there evolved a cavalry, an infantry, and a labor unit. So when Chue first took control, he had to enlist the support of the capital guards. But the organization of that force was purposely divided among several generals, each of whom was difficult to control. So Chue outwardly supported these dynastic military units while gradually stripping them of control, all the while building up his own private forces. The Council of Generals, which had become so instrumental under the rule of the prior military rulers and then fallen out of favor with Yi Li Min, did make a comeback under Chue. But it was relegated to a ceremonial role. For example, it discussed issues related to the nation's topography, geomancy, and rituals. 
Instead, the state council becomes the central ruling body on important matters. Gradually, the Capitol Guard became nothing more than a ceremonial unit. Tre had begun to staff the army with the old and weak, while saving the best men for his own private guards. In essence, without actually abolishing the Capitol Guards, Tre was replacing it with his own army that was loyal to him. And this would really become critical um, uh, in the coming years. Meanwhile, the emergency units were also being starved of resources. By 1216, a good 20 years into Tre's reign, larger forces beyond the borders of Goryeo were becoming critical. Gitan and Mongols were beginning to plunder the border up north, which is really a symptom of the seismic world events about to take place. When you think about the history of the Mongolian Empire, Korea was one of the first places to feel those vibrations before that earthquake would hit. And Choe had a, had a front seat to all of it. So unfortunately, the emergency units of yore that were so effective in fending off the prior Gitan invasions of the 10th and 11th century were woefully underfunded by this point. General Jung Suk-chom, who was put in charge of this emergency force, quickly realized that they were manned by the old and feeble. But Che established his stability by taking a firm grip and establishing a system of rule. So even though he had underfunded parts of the military and built other parts of it, he at least stopped the bleeding that had started to occur since the first military coup of 1170. And he did this by centralizing the military and placating civil, civil bureaucrats throughout, uh, through granting of land, but also enriching his pockets by confiscating rich farmland. Tre believes that slaves were gaining too much freedom and that this was the cause of a lot of the peasant unrest. In fact, more than a dozen peasant rev revolts had broken out across the kingdom during Myeongjong's reign. Many of Choe's plans were working, but that didn't mean he had it easy. In fact, Choe would survive a barrage of assassination attempts on his life throughout his reign. It's no wonder that he always traveled with a retinue of bodyguards. One, partic par one particular assassination attempt was by the king himself. So in 1204, King Xinjong, the guy that Choe put in pl in into place after deposing Myeongjong, claims illness and steps down from the throne. His son, Huizhong, takes his place. Huizhong had always been antagonistic towards Chue since his father took the throne and he became crown prince. So as soon as he ascended to the throne, he began to plot against Chue. First, he tried to lull the general into a false sense of security by first promoting him to the prime minister of the state and next by bestowing upon him the title of royal protector. This latter designation was exclusively granted to blood relations of the king. On the advice of his associates, King Huizhong hatched an assassination plot on Che. Feigning illness, he had Che visit the palace with just a few escorts. Once deep inside, Che was attacked by monks. He first begged to the king for help, but the king refused. So then Tre ran throughout the palace while the monks chased him, and he actually hid in one of the rooms in the palace and only survived because his guards came to rescue him. Of course, King Huizhong was banished after this debacle. 
he's lucky that he wasn't killed in some way. After this attempt, Tre noticeably increased his private army. By the time of the Gitan invasions in 1216, his private army had swelled to 10,000 men. Remember, that's, that's three times as much as the capital guards before the military coup. Those Gitan invasions really started to unravel Korea at this point. We talk more about the background of these foreign invasions in the Mongol episodes, so I encourage you to check those out. But Choi had already been, been juggling an almost impossible task. First, he had to deal with, the, with an already bankrupt state, because remember, in 1189, Yi Min had to borrow money from the local provinces. So he took land where he could, he could to fund it. Second, he had to create a private army without tearing down the existing one. Add to that the Gitan invasions, and things started to get really bad. Assassination attempts and rebellions increased during this time. In 1216, Chue is around 67 years old. The dynastic record shows that he officially handed control to Chue, Yu, Chue his, to his son, Che Wu, a few years earlier, but I'm sure he was still running things. But he's getting old, and with the Gitan invasions, things are really unraveling. Assassinations on his life and rebellions throughout the country increase. For example, in 1217, 700 monks storm the capital, attempting to kill Che. His private guard fights them off. In 1218, at the age of 70, Che Chung-hun has a stroke. This is horrible timing because this is the year that the Mongols essentially force Gordia into a suzerainty. Mongol envoys in fur coats march into the palace and grab... Uh, King Gojong's hand, and it's an incredible event that I describe in detail in um, my other episode. A year later, in 1219, at the age of 71, Che dies, and his son Che Wu becomes the sole ruler behind the throne. So some final thoughts on Che Chunghun's reign. Of all the military dictators during that Goryeo military rule, or what in Korea we called the Mushin Jungwan, Che was the most successful. He was able to build a coalition of civilians and military officers. He must have been doing something right because the system that he built was strong enough to be passed down to his son and then to his grandson. As a quick comparison to what was happening in contemporary Japan in the Genpai War, he was more like the Taida than the Minamoto. Taida wished to keep the Kyoto power structure in place whereas Minamoto was offering a completely new form of rule, rule, rule in which local strongmen were ostensibly given control, when in fact they, they too were subjugated to central authority, only this time in Kamakura rather than Kyoto. So we'll talk about the rest of the Che reign, including his son Che Wu and his grandson uh, Che Hang in the next episode. Talk to you then. Ah!